You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, all you lovely listeners. Welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Austin, and today we're excited to welcome Sophia Benoit to talk about her memoir, Well, This Is Exhausting. Sophia Benoit is a writer and comedian who grew up in Missouri and was correctly voted most likely to never come back. She's known for her wildly successful and hilarious Twitter account, at one follower, no dad, having written sex and relationship columns for GQ and Bustle, and her bylines in Allure, Refinery29, The Cut, The Guardian, Reductress, etc. She also writes an advice newsletter, Here's the Thing, in which she urges everyone to ask their crush out. Most importantly, I've known her since she was a college freshman at the University of Southern California, and she is one of my dearest friends. Welcome, Sophia. Thank you so much. Hi. Did that was that horrible? That was embarrassing? delightful. It, it was horribly embarrassing at the beginning, but then really it turned around. Oh, this that's, is the, that's, the way I got you to admit that we're dear friends. It is. It is, and you know, it was always in there. We knew that. We knew it. Uh, we hadn't said it. It was unstated in the way that most best <laughs> things are. <laughs> Uh, so Sophia, <laughs> it's going to be like this for 30 to 40 minutes. Just everybody yeah. strap in. If you're an editor of this, we are so sorry. So, so, so sorry. Uh, let us start officially by you doing a little reading from, from your book there. Uh, well, this is exhausting. All right. This chapter is called, I'm not doing Zumba with you. I do not under any circumstances want to do Zumba with you even in an emergency, even if there's a fire. I don't want to do a free trial of SoulCycle and I'm not joining you even for beginner's yoga. I'm not learning about Orange Theory or F45. We are distinctly not going to work out together. Workout classes, I'm sorry to say, are the opiate of the already fit or the already thin if we're being quite honest with ourselves, which I don't normally recommend, but I'll make an exception. They're designed to make the workout that your hot friend Natalia does social for her. She wants workout buddies. She wants someone to hold her accountable for her 7 a.m. workouts. I do not under any circumstances want to be accountable for a 7 a.m. workout. Do you hear me? I am not meant to squeeze in workouts on my lunch break or otherwise. I most certainly do not want to pay a monthly membership fee in order to recreate my middle school gym class. I know, I know I'm allowed to go at my own pace in theory, But in practice, you want me to keep up with people who can do that thing where you hold your leg up in the air while standing, the cheerleader thing. You know what I'm talking about. I can't keep up with people who can do that. My hips do need to be opened. You're right. I'm not going to try to solve that crisis in front of 25 other people in a mirrored room. Why the hell would I want to work out with other people? Why would I want an experience where we're all trying to get our bodies to do the same thing? Every friend of mine tells me, Sophia, it's not competitive. Just focus on yourself. No one is looking at you. That's utter bullshit. And we all know it. If I was really focused on me, there wouldn't be mirrors and there wouldn't be other people. And there wouldn't be an instructor named Mandy with an I or Tracy with a Y at the front of the room with the Britney Spears headset on shouting inspiration at me. If this were about me, if this were for my well-being, it would be an afternoon nap on my couch. Everyone is checking each other out and you can't convince me otherwise. We're human. I took a couple of Zumba classes in college at the urging of my roommate. It was a full frontal nightmare. Not only was I red, sweaty, and more out of breath than everyone else combined, but I never got the moves. Everyone else looked vaguely musical stomping their left foot on the waxed gym floor. I looked like an oversized toddler having either a tantrum or an exercise-induced asthma attack. I can never tell what I'm supposed to do when the instructor is facing me. Do I reverse her moves and mirror her or do I match her? Am I supposed to raise my right arm because she's raising her right arm or what? What's the plan here? Can't you just face the fucking mirror so I can follow along? I don't mind working out. I'm not going to pretend to love it, but it makes me feel so good after I'm done. I get weird headaches when I work out that doctors don't care enough about to figure out, despite their fervent enthusiasm for me losing weight. I have low blood pressure that makes me feel like I'm going to pass out sometimes when I bend over. I passed out one time at the gym and had to lie down on the floor. I got up only to pass out again. I like seated exercises like biking and rowing for this reason. Workouts are a necessary part of my life that I do a couple times a week if I can. can. And if I can't, oh fucking well. I feel like I should just stop here before I read you the entire book. 
That's um, yeah. I'm, you know, they'll get yeah. they'll they can cut it wherever, but also they'll get the point that I'm not going to work out. Yeah, I think it's. I think you nailed I don't, it. I, I don't that's... change over the course of this essay. I just want to be clear. <laughs> you don't learn. There's no. <laughs> there's no. There's no. In the last paragraph. No, no, no. There's no growth. The end is like I'm still not going to work out with you. It's just. It's literally says, and that's why I'm never going to join you for an 8 a.m. kickboxing class. You know, so th- there's no growth. There's no growth. That's okay. I think that's okay. And I think that was a, a great, great place to start because it really introduces a a your tone, your voice really well um and also i just uh i was uh, going back over this book because i read it when it first came out to search for all the references that could possibly be about me uh and then i recently went back to to review it before we did this and and some of the things that struck me right away were uh just how deeply relatable it was to me which probably is why we're friends but uh <laughs> certainly uh you know feelings about your body uh, working out, gym class, uh, your relationship to the idea of love and other people. And so, yes. and I think these are, these are obviously very relatable things uh, to, and they, they, they cut across to me, they cut across gender to me. Um, so I guess mostly I just, where did you sort of decide to start sharing those types of things that, that was, was it always just hopeful they'd be very relatable or were they just, you're writing your experience and then by a byproduct of that, you know, nature is universal. I think um, my editors had a big push and they're probably correct from a, totally from a marketing standpoint. I get where they're coming from. Um, There was a very big push early on to make this book um, very much appeal towards women, which makes perfect sense. I'm a young woman and I write a lot about sex and relationships from a perspective, obviously, because I am a cis white woman and that's a lot of my following so that's like that's my perspective that's kind of my bread and butter it's been that forever I'm very loud about um uh, or I have been historically really loud and often very annoying about equality and gender equality so there was like this huge push in the early stages of this book to make it very female centric um in kind of a ultimately reductive way because I think like often you get to this point where you're like well I mean what makes a woman a woman I mean yes we're all socialized as women and that's like a connective tissue for certain people and but then there's also like this very again like the gender binary is super limiting so I was always kind of um I was hesitant about that and I really didn't want to write a book just for women. Um, And this book isn't just for women. I wanna make it very clear. And like you've said, which is like incredibly nice, but I do think there's lots of essays and maybe not every single essay, but there's lots of essays that really do cross intentionally into a place that's like, anyone can read this and think I've been horny before, or I've asked someone out and it went so bad and it's so embarrassing to think about before, or um, my parents' expectations feel really stifling for me, or I tried really hard to be a good person and it turned out that I was being actually kind of a crappy person uh, and I had to adjust. So all those things I think do cross lines because we're all flawed humans and we all keep doing these like cute little things that that replicate themselves. I think all the time about, um, you know, when you leave your house and you forget something and you come back in and someone's like, oh, are you back already? And we've all agreed that yes. that's like a cute, funny thing that we all do, like all of us. I think yes. probably that probably crosses culture boundaries too. Yes. I think it's hilarious, but it's things like that where we all have these like, laws that get repeated too, um, not just the cute little jokes. So this was such a long-winded answer, but um, I've had quite a few men reach out to me and say, I'm surprised by how much I identified with this. And it, it it's, again, it's marketed towards women. It's a pink book. It's like got a champagne glass on the cover. Like yeah, yeah. it's, it says ladies basically, you know, um, <laughs> it's basically shouting like, Hey, are you a lady in your twenties? Get over here. Um, <laughs> which I, I, in some ways, wish I had gotten away from a little bit more. But at the same time, I was a lady in my twenties when I wrote it, and there are those essays that, like, maybe you you personally don't connect with, uh, but that like, there's forty people in my DMs being like, "Yeah, that exact thing happened to me." I don't know why I have UTIs all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yes. And, and two things that you've obviously just mentioned there that I, that I almost forgot to mention that I related to so hard. 
uh, first of all, your hypochondria, which uh, we proudly <laughs> share. Uh, and, and constantly, I feel like we're talking about symptoms to one another. And uh, obviously, extreme pressure from your parents to uh, perform uh, academically, uh, to be a certain way. And I, and I think that's obviously like a huge part of the beginning of this book and kind of carries throughout it in some ways. And I, and, and I think you're, you know, uh, dedicating it to your parents is a very nice move to get a lot of pressure off of yourself, I think. Uh, <laughs> what, what was it like starting to unpack some of that stuff and what is their response? Um, Have they read, they've read it, obviously. They yeah. both read it and, um, I, they both even read the parts that I specifically, you will see in certain chapters. I was like, do not read further. If you're my parents, this is a very graphic sex story. Like, and I even included a note being like, mom, this means you. <laughs> and um, then in the, in the Amazon review that my father left, which Amazon, very flawed, not great, but um, people go to see their reviews sometimes and my dad left a beautiful amazon review that mentioned that graphic sex story and i was like come on come on please <laughs> so um michael my, i know my uh, my parents have been incredibly unreasonably supportive of this project and um especially for two people for whom a lot of the blame is laid at their feet sometimes wrongly probably not for sure for sure i'm definitely wrong all the time um and I think it's very easy to to uh, to feel like your parents messed you up when the world's actually just hard and bad and being a human is really hard and we're all doing it the first time. And like, this is our first time. I think about that all the time of like, this is my first time doing this, by the way. Like, like <laughs> I'm, I'm really messing up, I will admit, but like, it's my first time. Um, so I feel like it's easy to sometimes put the blame there. and. I think I have so much love for my parents and I'm so close to both my parents and twinned in with that, like DNA helixed with that is they have extremely high expectations of their children because they love them so much. And they're like, you are my, um, my dad is the children of immigrants and very much has that mindset of like, we are the American dream. And, um, he sometimes takes it a little far. <laughs> um, <laughs> he takes it maybe too far. Um, but I think his his father was um, a blacksmith and a butcher who dropped out of middle school and like, you know, never had a full education. And then his sister, my aunt, was one of the first women to ever get a, to ever go to graduate school or try to get a doctorate at Princeton. So like, there's a huge jump for their generation of people. And so I think that pressure just kind of like the time they grew up in, like people were making these fantastic leaps from like, you know, my great grandparents, my grandparents grew up as farmers. And then you've got your kids going to college. That's crazy. So again, long, long-winded answer, typical of me, but um, I feel like their reaction has been wonderful and they've really taken a lot of things with all the love that I like hoped to give to them with it too, because this is absolutely uh, probably the worst version of a love letter to them, which is like, I could not be writing this book without and as corny, I mean, like in all the material ways, I couldn't be writing a book without their support, their help, their encouragement. But also like in the immaterial ways of like the reason I like think that I'm able to write a book or like thought that I was able, which is a wildly delusional belief, uh, was because they like gave me that, you know, they gave me this idea that like you could you could do this, like sure, go big. And that's the like level of expectations they have was like, yeah, you'll write a book one day. <laughs> it's just like, okay, I'll, I guess I'll do that, <laughs> you know? Uh, absolutely, and I and I just have to. Say, I loved. I read past the introduction, but I want to just say quickly. I love the introduction, <laughs> where you realize that the the opening to the Phantom Tollbooth is that you just like you couldn't read it, and you felt so bad that you couldn't read it. And it's a story about your dad giving you that book, which I think is so sweet, and like obviously sharing his love of reading with you. But and you felt so guilty about not being able to read it because you're like, this is so goddamn boring. <laughs> and then you realize it's an introduction. So I and I, I just I just say that I, I loved how much you could weave your humor and personality from the literal introduction all the way through to the acknowledgments. And so, what was was that a conscious? I mean, obviously it's a conscious effort on your part. Was there any uh, resistance to that from from editors? Was did they want a straighter intro? Did they want a more normal? Acknowledgement? Yes, or did they, they know? did. They did want a more normal intro, and I hate intros. And so I kept telling them they were like just 
explain the theme of the books and in the book and like bring in some of these themes. And I think they really want, I think they maybe not really wanted, but much, they would have preferred for me to deliver to them kind of like um, a mini like feministy girl powery manifesto-y vibe of like, <laughs> we need to do this or like, you will feel so good if, or like, here's how I learned etc um which is just not me like I never think I'm in the right um I mean I can be self-centered or you know stubborn about things all the time but I don't I don't necessarily think like oh I'm so killing it and other people should follow this and I mean I have opinions on everything but I don't I don't believe them so I I try not to um and, and I think there was I don't know I think there was like a very conscious effort in in me I wish I could have even brought in more of my family into this book as I continued and I think the biggest problem in bringing more of my family is one I think I have a little bit of a bad memory I can't believe how some people write memoirs where they're like and then in third grade I did this I'm like oh what did I do every day in third grade I do like literally what did I do when I came home there is a blank spot there um I think I played with Barbies I played with Barbies way too late in my life like an embarrassingly late age but one of the huge problems I had is that I, I can't write about, well, first of all, every time I talk or write about my parents, I cry because I love them so much. But second of all, I can't write about my mom because she's like too sweet and too good of a person. And so I was like, this is boring because she's so sweet. God love her, but she just means so well. It's so boring to read. It's just like, oh, someone's mom loved them, you know, <laughs> like, great. It was a beautiful, beautiful relationship with very little bumps. Yeah. we're so close to this day yeah well yeah, yeah that exactly. doesn't quite you know? that doesn't that's not spicy that's not selling books you're not moving yeah. merch uh <laughs> so <laughs> something you said in there that i i wanted to to really touch upon uh a because i need to know who this person is and you can tell me later it's fine and b uh because i i think it's a it's just a really interesting point that truly to me was was incredibly illuminating and i, and I, I loved it is you tell the story about going to get coffee with someone and essentially, it, it comes down to this person, uh, someone I think you're you're interested in in a in a, a horny way to yes, borrow your yes. parlance. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and they essentially say something to you along the lines of, "Isn't the point of life cultivating good taste?" Uh, which is an incredibly douchey thing to say. And you kind of follow up with a really interesting point of view on that. And, and, uh, and I just wanted to hear you talk about it a little more. Yeah. So um, I actually, almost, I looked at that essay when I was deciding what to read for this um, because it's something that gets me riled up all the time is that I think a lot of people and myself, my younger self, very much included think that like this douchey guy who I can't wait to tell you who it is, but I have to tell you after the podcast, cause I've lied so about excited. who it is to two people. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to tell you afterwards so that I can tell you the truth. Um, mostly cause they're close to the person. And so I couldn't, you know, I had to, anyway, um, <laughs> it was embarrassing. It's so awful. I have theories. Um, I have I theories, can't wait to hear, yeah. um, <laughs> for anyone out there who, who might not be as close to me, if you want to DM me, I will tell you the truth. I just can't <laughs> tell the people in my life the truth, you know, there are a couple of things like that. And there's also a couple of stories where I kind of like smushed some characteristics either down or together where I was like, maybe we should change who that person is. But, um, no, this person so openly said, I think the point of life is to cultivate good taste and, um, I think that's just, well, first of all, that's ridiculous on a face level of like the point of life. Well, first of all, we're on a rock, like we're just (laughs) hanging out. Like there's no point and that's fine. But if you're going to be like the point of life is you're not going to say like, you're not going to go the Beatles route and be like love. And you're not going to go with like helping people or just like caring for others or community. You're going with cultivating good taste. (laughs) Like that's so ridiculous. (laughs) That's silly. Um, But I think the bigger picture point is that, uh, and the point that I try to make in the book is that as a, as a woman in particular, our taste is so denigrated and obviously I'm a, maybe not obviously, but I'm a white woman. So this is even so much sharper for anyone who isn't white and who anyone who isn't this like majority hegemony, westernized American, you know, um, like white cis dude, but, um, like I remember reading once that when the Beatles first were um, coming on the scene, they had mostly female fans and they were dismissed 
by critics and other people in the area alike as this boy band that was like poppy and shitty and nothing. And they had all these female fans and like music critics kind of like scoffed at this. And this may be apocryphal, but this also happens all the time. So I'm fine with it being apocryphal. It's also a useful anecdote. So then soon men started to like the Beatles. And then all of a sudden they're the greatest band in the world. Like men like them, they're the greatest band in the world. Um, and I think that happens a lot with women's taste. Like the number of times people have made fun of me for watching The Bachelor is unbelievable. Meanwhile, my boyfriend constantly drops it. He watches The Bachelor because he does watch it with me all the time and with you uh, and <laughs> calling you out. Um, you've been dragged into it by your girlfriend too. And <laughs> no one says anything about him watching The Bachelor. No one thinks he's an idiot for watching The Bachelor. He will literally say it's actually a really well edited show and people respect his opinion on it. They're like, oh, really? I'm gonna have to watch. Meanwhile, if I'm like, oh no, it's a really well edited show. People are like, okay, well, um, good luck at the dumb bitch awards. Uh, you know, like I, I, they, they, there's not, as a woman, there's, it's very hard to convince people that your taste is good. I mean, honestly, another great example that I didn't include in the book, which I thought of later is throw pillows. Throw pillows are useless. We all agree they're useless. No one's like, yeah, they have tons of purpose, but they make your house look nice. And women have gotten shit for years for fucking throw pillows. Meanwhile, please open any magazine edited by, include, you know, written by anything with a man. Go to a rich man's house. Do you want to know what he has? Throw pillows because they make his house look nice. Yeah. Yeah. Your Beatles analogy is so right. I actually was, again, I was thinking about this last night. It's the exact same story of Frank Sinatra, who is like a teeny bopper guy until he becomes, you know, Mr. Rat Pack. Elvis was the same way. Like yes. it kind of, it's literally happened throughout history. Ryan Gosling, where, probably. Almost certainly. <laughs> almost certainly. Where in many ways, like women and they specific, I mean, I feel like Harry Styles at this point yes. is kind of in this camp where he is now a respected artist uh, after having been like scoffed at, after been in One Direction. Like you could almost make the argument women, specifically teen girls, are on like the bleeding edge of what is cool and interesting and what will be, you know, soon to be main, mainstream. And so I, I, you know, it was very interesting as like someone who is a white straight man in America, who's had a lot of culture uh, pointed at me for my entire life to go, oh, right. Like, why is it that, you know, these things, a, a you know, quote unquote chick flick is seen, is given that label and is always seen as lesser when things that I like aren't necessarily, you know, seen that way. So that was a, just a truly, really inspired point of view. Well, first of all, thank you. That was incredibly kind of you. One of the ones, the biggest one that I just, again, I wish I would have thought of this, but there's a category in almost every, uh, like, um, like on Amazon, on any bookseller that it says women's fiction what are what are we doing <laughs> what are we doing what's women's fiction what do you mean where's men's fiction what are you talking about oh that's just fiction oh that's just fi okay that's just fiction that's fine uh it's it's like there's a ridiculous like you said there's just this like a lot of culture has been aimed at you and again I don't want to say like as a white woman a lot of culture has also been aimed at me um so I don't want to pretend like I'm suffering because of this but more like i can't ever have good taste nothing i like is ever going to be good taste because i can't get there so like why don't i just kind of luxuriate in having bad taste and and enjoy when i have quote unquote bad taste and kind of get over myself and stop trying to like prove myself as this like smart and like intellectual consumer uh those are the same word but you get you get the point. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and to kind of that, that you, what you just said there brings uh, kind of a, in the larger theme of, of the book or the point of the book in many ways is, is so much of your life was spent trying to live up to the expectations of your parents, of cool girls in high school, of guys you were trying to impress in college. And like at a certain point, you just become exhausted at the charade of all that. And you get to kind of embrace who you are, which I think is a huge point of, in, in taste but then and also in the way you want to live your life. And I think that's such an interesting point as well to think like after so much effort being put into being something that you're not, that you just can't do it anymore. And then you tap into something that makes you actually much happier, which is just yes. kind of being what you want to be. You're doing 
such a great job of reading this book and being an interviewer. I just, I, that sounds <laughs> condescending. I know that sounds condescending, but I feel like I just, I don't know. I feel like you've like read the book very well and got like a lot of the things that I wanted you to get out of it. So I don't know, <laughs> please edit this out. I know that's stupid, but it's, it's like kind of nice. I don't know. I feel like some people are like, what does it mean to be a strong lady? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm crying every day. <laughs> I cried today. What are you talking about? No, but it, I think, I think you're. <laughs> okay. I, may never, I may never recover from that. <laughs> that's uh... fair. No, that's fair. I, I'm always, I mean, I do feel like I, I did the, like, it's a little bit like the Sisyphusian task of like Sisyphean task I, oh god that's a word I'm i can yell it either way um it's both he likes both <laughs> um it's pushing the boulder up the hill of like a societal approval and approval from others and like especially male approval which was huge for me in college and later in my life and like i i mean i still find myself in all these traps of wanting male approval male attention or wanting parental approval or societal approval or like I'll convince myself that someone on my Instagram is so cool and they hate me and that's like so that's that is such a waste of my time and yet and yet but I feel like I did a I got to this point where it's not I think part of the big point of the book is it's not that I came to some of these conclusions or let go of some of the effort that I was putting in because I had these epiphanies of feminism and you know, just like my praxis needs to be better. And I, it was, like you said, I just got exhausted and I kind of just let the boulder roll down the hill by itself. And I kind of just rolled down the hill after it. It was like, all right, <laughs> I suck at this. <laughs> I'm really bad at it. I don't know what to do anymore. And um, I mean, what, what kind of what can you do? It was kind of this like blow up point in my life at the end of college and towards the end of college that like all these things that I've been wanting for so long and trying for for so long didn't matter and weren't working out. And I got really angry. And then I, I then that alienated all these people in my life, rightfully so I was very annoying. And then, and you knew me then, so you can you can be <laughs> kind about it. But I, I think we both know I was very annoying for certain periods of my, my life. Um, and then I, I, it was like, you know, it was the like, blow the your own ship up kind of moment of like I I have nothing let's blow this up it's not working and then as soon as like the anger of that like explosion and fire died down which took probably two years I was kind of left with something better and cooler which was like okay you care about people let's admit you care but maybe let's not spend your entire life trying to just build it around others maybe that could be cool <laughs> Just to try, just to sample it just, out a little just bit. Just sample it. Just yeah. maybe pull back because you're kind of intense and it is scaring people. <laughs> you know, it's a lot for everyone. <laughs> you know? Well, and it's so interesting. You say like, obviously, like you just sort of blow it all up and like you kind of almost give yourself a clean slate. You're, you're, you're down to the rubble. You clear the rubble away. And in that place, uh, there's a great chapter about sort of, uh, you know, the internet and social media rightfully gets a lot of uh, valid criticism. But for you, it kind of opened a door to a new uh, kind of way to look at things and, and, a, and, a, and just, just a whole other array of, of points of view on things. And so it became a really helpful uh, tool for you. And so like we're, you know, did, was that something in the in the moment you were realizing was happening or, or sort of in retrospect? I would say much more in retrospect, but it's always kind of easy to like figure out that you learned a lesson after you learned it. And sometimes in the moment, it just feels like you're swimming upstream. And I, I, I came to Twitter at such a weird time where people were still, first of all, Twitter was still really fun and jokey back then. And it wasn't political and no one was sharing articles at all. Like the idea that you would share an article was ridiculous. Um, like the nerds were sharing articles and <laughs> everyone was tweeting like good cop, bad cop jokes and like good night moon jokes. And there was like these, there would just be like a weekly me meme of sorts and everyone would just tweet jokes. It was so much fun. Um, uh, how young we were. Um <laughs> that's not the saying it's were we ever so young I think it's fine um the people get it <laughs> yeah yeah 
but I, so I spent this time on Twitter because I really thought I wanted to be a stand-up comedian and I entered Twitter that way and I wanted to do at least one tweet a day or maybe it was at least three tweets a day or something and I my requirement was that they all be clean which if you've now heard this interview or read my book you probably have realized that that ended very quickly um but for years I had a clean Twitter where I only wrote clean jokes which was phenomenal for me most mostly because I thought I was going to get kicked out of of college if they found out that I said the f word which is not how college works at all um I little did I know and um but I I I had to write all these jokes and I, I forced myself to, and I didn't really, I just wanted to have joke after joke after joke. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could be this like font of, um, of humor. And it started that way. And then all of a sudden I started like following other comedians that, who were women and they would intersperse their jokes with things like, I can't believe that I'm going to a stand-up show where there's three rapists on the lineup and one woman. And at first that kind of stuff didn't really sink in and didn't seem like it applied to me. Of course it applied to me, but I didn't know that because I was 19 and, um, and a dummy. And so those things slowly kind of trickled in from a very like white female comedian perspective. And then it started to like occur to me so late in my life, embarrassingly late and, um, only late because again, like I've mentioned many times, I'm like, I have this immense amount of privilege. So it could be late in my life that like, maybe if, you're treated unfairly as a woman <laughs> versus men, that there also might be other axes of privilege going on, um, which like I knew on a very logical level, but I wasn't really dipping into listening to other people. I was very much like, yeah, I got it. Racism's bad, sexism's bad. We hate homophobia. It's 2022, I vote liberal, I am liberal. It wasn't 2022 back then, sorry. It's been 2022 <laughs> for so long for me. Uh, it was 2015. Um, but I like thought, or maybe 2014, but I thought I like had all those things down. I was like, I'm not racist. I'm liberal. I'm doing all the right things. I like drive a Prius. How could I, I'm unimpeachably good. Um, and then slowly I like unpacked all this stuff, but it was all from the internet and, and all from social media, which is like you said, totally valid to criticize it and a, a rotten cesspool. And also this place that like, I wouldn't think billionaires are bad if I had never been on Twitter. I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't think that. I wouldn't have any concept of that. I don't think if I hadn't been on social media, I think I would just be this like nerd, like nerdy white girl who just spent all her time reading, like reading nerdy books. And then, and, and there's something to gain from books. There is, but like who gets published, who gets to talk, who, you know, there's this like equalization factor and this immediacy of social media that brought me to much more elevated conclusions about the world than I think I would have gotten to. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, that's clear talking to you now, um, how much that has, you know, become a part of who you are. And I think that's really wonderful. Uh, I know we ended on a, on a more serious note there, but I do <laughs> want to go back to the part where you're writing jokes on Twitter because uh, there are some really interesting chapters or uh, interesting there there's some chapters in here that are written more like a list that are just kind of one-liners which is reminiscent of your sort of twitter style uh and i guess i was in the writing of it was there just were those things you couldn't find a place for or you're just like these are jokes that are so good and i just need to find a way to get them in here are they all thematically tied and you know what like what was the decision to be like some of these chapters are just going to be bang 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 joke 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 I wanted more chapters like that. Um, one person whose books, I think the first time I read a book that I felt like, um, this is gonna sound, I, I don't know how to even put it. I felt like, oh, you wrote this for me, even though clearly this person didn't. Hmm. Um, and it's even funnier when I'm gonna tell you what the book is because I read this as a probably 19 year old and the book was Nora Ephron's I Feel Bad About My Neck, which is about being a 50 year old woman, <laughs> you know, like this is who I am as a person, like fundamentally, yep. you can't think of a more Sophia moment probably. Um, <laughs> it's just yep. who I am. I really felt mm -hmm. like, oh my God, yes, I connect with so much of this. Um, again, that's so insane to think about now, but, um, and sh her books have these phenomenally funny lists, which not, I, I would deign to compare myself with um, 
with Nora Ephron, but in so many ways, I loved that, 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 that quick wit, cause she can do so much in a list. I mean, she just, she, she's like, it's like the six word Hemingway story, but like, Hey, did you want that 20 times in a row? And you're like, yeah, I do. But really funny. Um, and and just poignant and hers were beautiful. I I loved her list. So when I thought, and I read through books that I thought were similar, Shrill by Lindy West, and then um, all of Nora Ephron's writing, both of them used lists. Oh, and um, obviously Samantha Irby, all of her books have these phenomenal lists. She has an entire chapter that is her bachelor interview or bachelor application. I think about it all the time. Um, But all of these phenomenal female writers that wrote memoirish books used lists and I love the juxtaposition of kind of going on and on and on about something which is what an essay is it's so obnoxious whoever invented it god bless them but it's a it's a funny and somewhat annoying um writing style and of course I picked that one and I love that juxtaposition with a list which is bam 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 and occasional moments and flickers of emotion, but mostly just humor, 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 humor. And I thought those were nice breaks from sometimes really heavy things. Cause in, you know, certain essays here, there's, there's a lot about hating my body or hating myself or sexual assault or, you know, um, illness or all kinds of things of just like kind of weighty topics, even if I'm mostly trying to be light about them. So I wanted something that was then like, let's have some fun. And I, again, I wanted more lists in there and I wanted more, at one point I talked to an editor about having, um, graphs in there and oh. more visuals. Um, but I think I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. And I feel like maybe more would have taken away from some of the, the essays. Um, if I made it too listy, um, but yeah, I just, again, I wanted to break it up and, and also as a reader, don't you love it when you turn to a chapter and it's like two pages long and you're like, hell yeah, <laughs> here we go. I'm getting shit done today. This yes. chapter's out of here. Yes. Accomplishments. Yeah. It feels so uh, good. It's the best. Yeah. No, I, and I think there's a there's a definitely a good amount. I mean, yeah, I was surprised because when I first read it, I was like, oh, I love the list. And I think, was there three or four? I think there's four total. I think there's four, four total. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like there were more, and and I think maybe that just speaks to how funny they all are and how like, you know, just cut diamond they are that that they they stick with you because they're 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 perfectly bite sized and like the jokes will just you know they hang with you. There was uh, one sure. list that got cut that um, I was asked the question at um, my book event recently mm-hmm. that um, someone said what got cut that you kind of wish had stayed in or you wish you would have fought for which you know, great question. Would love to answer that. Um, I'll ask it to myself. Um, I'm just kidding. Yeah, maybe you get this person over here to start interviewing you. They're, yeah, they I wish better. they were here. They great. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, there was this list that was everyone I've ever had a crush on and what they're up to now. And it was cut mostly because uh, I started it with like all these kind of like childhood crushes and that I couldn't find out about some information and all this. And then um, one of the crushes of mine, which is what I ended with, ended up going to prison for murdering his child and not crushes. He actually just asked me out, I guess, but it kind of was like, I kind of cheated there, I guess. But um, I just, I thought it was a funny list. And my editor was like, this does not match the tone of the rest of the book. The beginning of it, maybe. She's like, what are you trying to say here? (laughs) um which is fair but I also kind of miss that list yeah I mean that's what they always say you want to end on the child murder yeah powerful powerful hammer powerful ending (laughs) yeah yeah uh well moving towards both the end of your book and the end of our time together uh I did want to bring up another story uh about Dave your partner who uh you know look you're a lady I can't talk about it you without talking about a guy you're attached to (laughs) uh no dave's great we love him he's the best uh but you have this great story about uh you two going to mexico city and it's uh also a moment that i i relate to but i'm more the dave in the story i'm the dave in the story in general but in the specifics i'm the you uh in which case that exact thing has happened to me and i thought i was dying and i had to like look it up and then i realized what had happened 
But generally, my partner, Audrey, is constantly being like, don't eat that. Put that down. What's wrong with you? Stop. Don't smoke that cigar. You're a maniac, please. (laughs) Um, So what was it now? So like, obviously, it's so different being a person who's like very early on in the book, you talk about like thinking the idea of romantic love is dumb. And like having that point of view, and even if secretly you you felt like you were always sort of obsessed with it, what is it now being in like a long-term successful relationship and you kind of have to contend with a partner who doesn't always listen to you, <laughs> is, is, can be, uh, have very different opinions than you, can be opinionated in their own right. What, what is that like? And, and also, if you want to tell, quickly tell that story about going to Mexico City, I think that'd be great. So the story goes that I went to Mexico City, very high elevation. It was my boyfriend and my first time in Mexico City. Um, phenomenal city. We keep going back. I cannot recommend it enough. But the high elevation means that sometimes you get altitude sickness. And we were also staying on the 14th floor of a hotel, which made it even worse. And so we were getting tired and dehydrated. And I, of course, was looking up on WebMD, as you do every day, uh, what are signs of altitude sickness and how do I cure it? And they basically said, get rest, get water and take ibuprofen, which of course I packed with me. Don't worry, girls. Um And so I did all those things and I still kind of felt a little crappy, but one thing that I noticed was that Dave's hands were turning blue. And if you've read the WebMT for altitude sickness, as I have, you will know that your hands and extremities, if you will, only turn blue if you're getting extreme altitude sickness, which is very dangerous because you can die. Uh, Fun little fact there. And so I am like, Dave, this is not good. We should probably just go to a clinic. I'm sure there's a clinic somewhere nearby that is used to having people that don't, that only speak English. And I'm sure someone can help us. Like someone will do this. Even if we don't have, like, even if your insurance doesn't work here, like this is worth it. Like you are, yes, it will take a day out of our trip possibly, but worth it. You might be dying. And I nagged him and nagged him for at least two and a half days. I think it was about two and a half days. And I finally, on that final night before the next half day, reached a point of acceptance of his death where I started to plot out how I was going to explain to the Mexican authorities that the person next to me that I woke up with in a hotel bed, in an Airbnb bed, was dead. Yes, it's my partner. And it's our first trip we've ever taken together. And of course, he's dead from just normal altitude sickness, which I'm fine. I'm fine. He's dead. And I was like, I don't even know. I literally started thinking about how that I didn't know his dad's phone number and I didn't know what his funeral arrangement should be. And I was like, I'm going to have to get into his phone and call his dad and be like, so your son died. (laughs) Um, Anyway, it turned out that the next day we found out that he had bought new jeans for the trip and they turned his hands blue when he put his hands in his pockets. So (laughs) I was wrong and I nagged him for two and a half days and he was like, can you shut up uh, for two and a half days? Um, He didn't say that at all. He was like, I think I'm okay. (laughs) Um, But to answer the the bigger part of the question, um, I never, never, never thought that I would be in a long-term serious relationship, mostly because I thought it was, like you said, dumb and very boring. And um And I just thought, like, I love excitement. I love newness. I'm so into the idea of somebody wanting me. Like, I grew up, as a huge part of the book explains, um, an overweight kid who never had people wanting them. So now it seems like the thing, um, like this big achievement, um, which is so silly and such a waste of my brain space. But I think it was really hard for me to imagine just you know, picking one person and sticking with it. Cause what's the point? Let's have fun. Um, and I've gotten, I have two metaphors that I use a lot in writing um, that there's a similar metaphor that Sam Irby uses, I think too. So I don't want to pretend like I'm the first person to come up with this, but um, one is the idea that new love often feels like a roller coaster, which is very fun and exciting and old love or long-term love feels often like coming home and like sitting in a cozy chair and putting on your favorite socks, which like, that isn't as exciting as a roller coaster. I will give you that. (laughs) But like what you don't want to be on a roller coaster forever. Like you don't, you really don't. And the other one I use is like, um, if someone told you that like, like this is what you're going to eat every morning for breakfast. You'd pick oatmeal. You wouldn't pick pop rocks, which is like, you want someone who 
is this like steady and grounding force. And I think it's been at times very hard for me to reconcile the idea that I only get one life. And so sometimes it feels like, oh, if I only am with one person, that's like a limiting choice when it isn't, it's a very expansive choice, but um, it's like a Sylvia Plath in the fig tree where she's sitting on the fig tree and wants to eat all the figs, but she never picks one because she wants to eat them all. And then they all rot. Um, I think that's like very easy to do. And it's very easy to feel like if I make this one decision, it's going to turn me into one person and I'm with one person and therefore I become one person. And it's, that's not the case. It just takes a lot more effort um, when you're in a long-term relationship to like, remember to still discover yourself and to um, like, people talk a lot about like falling back in love with your partner, which is fine. That is what it is. Uh, but <laughs> that's such a bad way to put it. It is what it is. Uh, yeah, sure. I do that. Um, but I think there's also got to be like this huge effort to make sure to keep falling in love with yourself again and again, or not falling in love, but like rediscovering that like, oh, Hey, I can be different too. Like I can change as a person. I'm not locked in on this. So I would say, um, my parents have both been married four times and engaged even more than that and to different, many different people, not to each other. Um, and I think I always kind of thought my life would go like that and be just like excitement, breakup, heartbreak, little, you know, ups and downs. And I found that it's like kind of been the great project of my life so far. I don't know that it will be forever, but to kind of learn how to be steady and learn how to be like there and present and keep showing up for a person and keep being like in it and, and not submit to the idea of this is boring or this is not as like thrilling as meeting a new person and on a dance floor who probably hates me <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know it isn't as thrilling as that no one will ever be as thrilling as that person you met at 19 who didn't like you no one will ever ever be as thrilling as them <laughs> I think we all have a person we met at 19 who hated us and that we love <laughs> and they're a terrible person now you know Anyway, that's the baby murder. Yes. I'm kidding. Yeah. It's not, I, it's not. I, I wish, no, I, no. I wish, I wish that person would have been the person who ended up killing their kid. Uh, not that I wish anyone would kill their kids. I'm just saying, I wish if I could pick one person. <laughs> who would go to jail for the rest of their life. Yes. Someone that should go person. to jail and it should be the person that I thought I would end up with at 19 <laughs> who treated me poorly a little bit. Mostly it's my fault, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, that's a great answer and uh, makes a lot of, I mean, it's, I, first of all, preaching to the choir, because I, I again, I think a, a huge reason we're friends share a lot of these same sort of neuroses and it's that feeling, especially again, I think we can agree on this is like when you grow up and you're like uncomfortable in your body and you're sort of unwanted. And then like all of a sudden you have choice and then you're like, well, what am I going to do with all this choice? And then you like zone in on one thing. It feels like one well, wasting all this choice and yes, but yes but it's really a choice you get to keep making oh, over and over way again to put it yes and and it's also like I also think it's a very selective memory because I often like go read writing this book I went through and read my journals from college because I was in a class that made me keep a journal and then I kept going through it um or like kept me made me do like morning pages basically and uh kept making me do this so I, I did it for about the last three years of college and it's such a period of time I romanticized in my life as so fun and so filled with desire and so filled with people maybe not wanting me but me thinking maybe they did which was felt very exciting and like that possibility um and then I reread my journals and I was like oh you had anxiety the whole time <laughs> you just that's so cool that you thought that that was such a fun time because you are admittedly it's a journal so you're like letting out some of the worst stuff and like getting out like the, the phlegm but uh it was not as great as I wanted to think I was like oh yeah a lot of people didn't want you back and there weren't choices or a lot of people like hurt your feelings or you hurt your feelings or you were awkward around them or <laughs> so I think it's like very easy to romanticize the idea of like this wide open expanse of possibility um but I think there's also, like you said, like there's something really nice in just like continuing to pick somebody who puts their little hands in their little jean pockets and gets them all blue. And now <laughs> you think they're dying and you don't know what to do with their body <laughs> in Mexico. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So thank you for joining me. This was so lovely. Uh, what, a, what a nice chat we get to have as friends. Just the two of us talking about your book. Thank you Amazing. so much for doing this. Oh, no, please. This was a joy uh, for me. I mean, I've, I've said this before, you know, when we get our partners together in a room with us, I miss my one-on-one so, so far. I know, I know. They're left out. Yeah. They're, the, they're the third and fourth wheel. <laughs> Push them away for, for, for 45 minutes, please. They don't have the long-term, like, years-long relationship that we do. We've been in it. We've been in it since the trenches. <laughs> I mean, I think it was first the last week of college for me, yeah. for me, first week of my college, I met you. And then it was just like, you're seeing all of it. Good news. It, it, I think the last time we hung out, you had the realization it's been 11 years and the wind, the air left my lungs. Uh, <laughs> just, just impossible. That's like a third of our lives. <laughs> you did it to me again. Why would you say things like this? So, you're so right. But God damn it. Look, uh, yeah. I'm just being me. Be you. I'm never going to tell you not. <laughs> except sometimes. <laughs> no, except uh, sometimes. Except sometimes. Uh, well, again, thanks again for joining me. Thank you all the listeners uh, of the Skylight Books podcast. Uh, you can pick up Sophia Benoit's amazing, lovely, hilarious, touching, heartfelt book at the Arts Annex location. It's going to be at 1814 uh vermont avenue i almost spaced the address 1814 vermont go in and pick it up at the arts annex it's going to be in the humor section they are all signed one of them will be personalized to the captain look out for that book it's in there somewhere uh and thank you all for listening much appreciated thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.